But I entitled today's message, Way Off Target, and the issue is dealing with hardened hearts. So I want to begin with a quote by Oswald Chambers, the guy that wrote My Utmost for His Highest, and we'll begin with that. He said, we are not to make men converts of our opinions, but we are to make them disciples of Christ. Some people in the church need to burn that one into your mind. You are not here to make converts of your kingdom. You are not here to make people think more like you. You are here to make them disciples of Christ. What's our motto at this church? We move you closer to Christ. Why? Because he's the only one that can fix you. We can't do that, but he certainly can. So I have a couple questions for you to spin through your mind to sort out how you're going to feel if you were in this first century scenario. All right. First question for you is this. What current movement is going on in the world? You don't have to answer out loud, but what current movement is going on in the world, either in Christendom or out, that you don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole? You can't stand it. You hate that it's around. You're fearful that it's going to take root, and you're scared to death of it, and so you don't want to in any way lend credence to it, so you don't even want to talk about it. Is there any movements like that in your mind that are going on? Now... Picture that feeling that you have right now, and that's how the Pharisees thought about Jesus. Okay? They were horrified that he was on the scene. They wanted nothing to do with him. They wanted no one to follow him, and they wanted to make sure this guy gets shut down and out of the way as fast as possible. All right, now i got another question for you. What doctrine, what belief are you so entrenched in that you're willing to sacrifice love for it? You go, what, what do you mean? I don't understand. Which point? Well, what belief are you currently pushing that you're willing to be a jerk for? Because that's what you're doing. So what belief is so important to you that you're willing to sacrifice the core of Christianity for? Because now your doctrine is bigger than Christianity. You're being rude. You're pushing this view. And you're willing to battle over it. You're fighting other Christians over it. You're trying to tear things apart because of the sake of truth, when in fact, somehow you've slipped. Now, do I believe in truth? What do you think I teach for a living? Of course I believe in truth. But the point is, why have you allowed your belief in this doctrine to supersede love? At some point, love must always win out, and you cannot be horrible and rude when you're talking about it. So my point in saying that is we're now again in the Pharisee realm. They believed in their things so strongly. They believed they were following God so accurately that they missed the Messiah, that they were horrible to people and they tore people down rather than build them back up. Are we doing that? Because here's really an issue for me. In the church, it seems like we put two categories out for everybody, especially for our kids. And this is a big mistake. Here's your two categories. Church, world. Where do the Pharisees fit in? You guys understand what I'm talking about? Who was Jesus really angry with? It was not the world. It was the Pharisees. They're in the church. Okay, so clearly we don't have enough categories. We need to break another category out, which is now world, Christianity, religiosity. 
We now have a third, and when I say religiosity, I mean religion that is of the negative sort. There's a pure and faultless religion the Bible talks about, which is helping orphans and widows and these sorts of things. Those are all good, but unfortunately, none of us seem to be doing a whole lot of that, so we put religion in a bad category. My point is, the ones that Jesus got most irritated with and battled the most are not in the world category. And we need to be very careful we don't become like that. You can be in the church subculture and just as damaging as anything in the world. Does that make sense? Therefore, we need to watch how we view the world. And we've got to make sure that our beliefs and stuff we hold on to, when it clashes with Jesus, Jesus always wins. Therefore, the fill in the blank in front of you is this. Allow Jesus to redesign your world. Allow Jesus to redesign your world. You will see all throughout this Matthew series a very common uh, motif or a very common theme that permeates all of them. And that's the idea that Jesus does things very different than you might imagine. And he's going to go head to head today in battle. If you haven't already, turn with me to Matthew 12, 1, page 689. I just want to read the first two verses and we will get started. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and he began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. What in the world could they possibly mean? Well, let's pray about it and we'll study it. Heavenly Father, would you open up our eyes that we might see you as you are. Not as we want you to be, not as we've redesigned you to be, but as you truly are. And Lord, as you go into battle, may we not be on the opposing side. That Father, if you have drawn a line in the sand, some way, somehow, bring us back to your side. And not allow us to oppose you. I pray right now, Father, that you would free hearts today. That you would allow us to re-rack today. That you would give us a new world view today. That we may see through your eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. All right, so we got an agrarian society. They're taking a walk. The rabbi is walking with a big crew of people. Now, it's not just as... 12 apostles, though it could have been just those guys. We don't know because disciple is a broader category. He's walking through grain fields on the Sabbath. What's the Sabbath? It's the seventh day of the week. Okay, when the when God created the world, you go all the way back to Genesis, first story. It says that he created this, 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 this. On the seventh day, he what? Rested. Therefore, the Sabbath day was a marker and it was the idea of you need to mellow out and let things regrow in your body for your body needs to grow by rest. Interesting, a couple of years ago we were at a conference and this man was speaking and he works at a company called Peak Performance. He works with world-class athletes and he explained that you do not grow under stress, meaning You have to create stress in your body. Well, going to the gym, that's the idea. You're creating stress and you're tearing down your muscles. That's not when you grow. You grow when you rest. If there is no rest, there is no growth. Does that make sense? So God obviously knew that a long time ago. He designed it into our system. So he designed in a period of rest. There was many laws that went about it. You could not work on the Sabbath. So... 
The Jews then decided to go, well, we don't want to violate God's law, so we need to figure out what he means by rest. What is defined as work and what is defined as rest? Well, as normal, they took it way too far. All of a sudden, all these traditions started. In the Mishnah, which is basically a commentary on God's law in the Jewish world, there were 39 forbidden acts that you could not do ever on the Sabbath. Now, in addition to those, everybody had an opinion. So depending on which rabbi you followed, they had such extreme nitpicking little things that you couldn't do. There was how far you could walk and no further. You could do this, but you couldn't do that. There literally was arguments as to whether or not a tailor could walk out with pins in his clothes. Why? Because then it would be work. I mean, they went to an nth degree and they boiled it down to an irritating level. Jesus has a problem with that. So he's going to go head to head with them. Now, what is one of the last things we just heard Jesus say last week? He said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. We are about to see Jesus's view of rest in light of the culture's view of the Sabbath rest. So. We dive into it. He's walking through with his disciples in the grain fields. His disciples were hungry, it says, and began to pick some heads of grain and, according to Luke, rub their hands together and eat the kernels. So you're really hungry. These guys know how the gig, how the gig works. You just walk through, let your hands grab on all the barley or the wheat, depending. Okay, so wheat was the richer people, barley was the poorer people, depends on what field they were in. They scoop up all this stuff and they have a handful of produce. Well, in order to eat it, you don't want to eat the husk because that's just gross. So you rub it together like this. It breaks it apart and then you blow it and all the chaff or the husks blow away. You have kernels left and you just munch on those as you're walking along. That's all they're doing. The Pharisees automatically see them right now. This to me, this creates a rather comical picture, right? What are they doing there? Okay, you're walking along and there's little Pharisees like children of the corn hiding out in there. And then you just kind of prairie dog look around and they go underneath and then they zoom over there and they look over. And you're like, really, are you following us in the field? This is totally stupid. And they immediately go there, there, you're busted. You're right. And they're chasing him around like little kids going, you're in trouble. You can't be doing that. Now, what were they challenging them on? Two issues that are listed in the 39 forbidden tasks, which are what? Reaping and harvesting or threshing work. Okay, this is how focused or how tunnel vision they were. They went, you guys are working. He's like, we're eating a kernel of grain. What is your problem? Okay, their idea of rest is obviously slightly different. Okay, when the Pharisees saw this, they said, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Jesus answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? Okay, so Jesus' first, rea first reaction or analogy or example on why this is okay is David in the Old Testament. Now, he's going to cite a story from 1 Samuel 21, which he'll explain a little bit. Now, Mark says, in the days of Abiathar the high priest, then we'll go back to Matthew, he entered the house of God... And he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. What is he talking about? Okay, here's the scenario. In Israel's highest state, 
they had a monarchy. They had kings, and they were growing as a nation. There were three major kings in Israel's history, which are who? Saul, David, and Solomon, his son. Okay? How did Saul and David get along? Not so hot. Okay. David was basically the protege, the up-and-comer. However, Saul got jealous and paranoid, and he kept trying to kill him. Okay, this is how bad it was. You guys remember the stories where he'd throw a spear at him? He was literally trying to nail him to the wall and kill this kid. But David had been anointed by God as the next king of Israel. So we now go, well, which one's the king? There's the guy on the throne, but there's the real king over here. All right. Things get tense. He's trying to kill him. And so finally David goes, I got to get out of here. Well, his best friend was who? Jonathan, Saul's son, the prince. So he goes, Jonathan, I got to go. And Jonathan's like, hold on, man. I think you're making more of this than is really there. I really don't think dad's trying to kill you. Let me go check it out. (laughs) Okay. So he goes, he comes back, he goes, yeah, he's really trying to kill you. I think you need to get out of here. (laughs) Okay. So they, they give each other a hug and he has to take off. Now he goes into running and he will run and hide for years. But right when he starts out this, this running thing, he's got a crew of guys with him that wanted to be loyal to David. They take off and they start to go hide in caves. Well, they realize they have no provisions for the journey. They're going along and they're starving. They come upon a house of God, which is a place of worship. And there was a priest there named Abiathar. They run up and they go, you got to give us something to eat. We are starving. Now, Abiathar is a little nervous. Hey, why are you the king's right hand man here? This is making me nervous. Is something wrong? Why are you checking up on me? What's going on? And he's starting to get nervous. And David's like, just give us something to eat. And he's like, I don't have anything for you. We just switched out the consecrated bread. Do you, you want that? Okay, what's the consecrated bread? In the house of God, they would always have what was called the showbread, which was 12 loaves of unleavened bread that were, that were kind of the idea of representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. Those were God's bread. Okay, you put them in this special temple area. That was only for God. Nobody touches it. The priests make it, but they only get a chance to eat it later. Okay? Because clearly God doesn't eat his bread. He's not really a bread guy. He's on into carbs right now. But anyway... So he doesn't eat his bread. You got to take his bread and then you go eat it. Okay. So he said, do you want the old, the bread that the priests eat? And David said, absolutely. Let's go. And he handed it to him and David broke it out and gave it to his uh, buddies. Now that normally is a tremendous violation. Nobody eats that but the priests. So why was David allowed to? Here's Jesus' whole argument. He was the anointed king of Israel. He was the one that was able to bend the rules adjust the rules because of who he was that's his first argument look at the next argument or haven't you read verse 5 in the law that on the sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and get their innocent what does he mean on the sabbath you're not supposed to work but you can go to temple what are the priests doing at the temple working that's his next argument really so The priests aren't getting busted for working. They're doing all the sacrifices, the butchery. They're doing all the prep, and they're not getting busted for it. Why? Because of who they are. What's their function? What's their task? Oh, look, they're God's workers. Who they are changes the rules. Then he moves on. He said, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. Okay, you don't say that to a Jew. 
Okay, to the Jews, the temple's a huge deal. And he just said, they go, no, 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 nobody's greater than the temple except God. You're not. You are? You're saying you're God. Okay, Jesus kept doing that. Then he said, if you had known what these words mean, and he quotes Hosea 6, 6 for the second time in Matthew, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. In other words, if you could just get the understanding of what God's trying to tell you, we wouldn't be having this conversation. It's not about rules, regulations and making people miserable. This is about love and getting to know your God. So why are we arguing about this? Then he drops a bomb for the son of man, which is Jesus's favorite term for himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, I can do whatever I want. I run the show here. Where did he get this idea of the Son of Man? Keep your finger there in Matthew. Bounce back a couple books to the left to Daniel chapter 7, page 631. You're going to go from page 689 to page 631. Go backwards and you'll find exactly where he got this from because this title is used a lot by Matthew. So I need you to see why it's so important and why it was so offensive to the Jewish people. You look at that and you go, well, he didn't call himself the son of God. Only John ever included that concept. He never called himself the son of God. So maybe he's trying to be nice and he was trying to be humble. Well, hold on a second. Look at who he just called himself. This story in Daniel is right after Daniel, who was a prophet, had all these amazing visions. He just had a vision of the 12 beasts. I mean, the four beasts with the four kingdoms. Remember all that stuff? All of a sudden he has a vision. In my vision, verse 13, Daniel 7, at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. Ah, there's the term. What was he like? Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days, which is who? Father of God. Father, Father of God. That was dumb. Father God is what I was trying to say. Sorry. Threw on a new doctrine there on you. Sorry about that. That's incorrect. That's called a heretic. All right, moving on. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Now, verse 14 is the key. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now you see why the Jews were irritated? Who did he just call himself? Hi, I'm God. The son of man title is very dramatic and all the Jews knew the old Testament backwards and forwards. So they knew what he was saying. He said, I'm that guy. I make the rules. Well, they didn't like that very much. So the battle continued. We pick it back up in Matthew 12 verse nine. Now, in order to tell the story a little bit better, I'm going to combine the accounts of Luke and Mark in there. Remember the three synoptic gospels are very similar. Matthew, Mark and Luke. So I'll just mush them together and tell the story from all of their perspectives. It goes like this. Going on from that place on another Sabbath, he went into their synagogue. Now, this is in Capernaum, Jesus's home base. And he was teaching there. And a man with a shriveled right hand was there. Some of them, meaning the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Okay, we have a setup. We all following it. Jesus is hanging out in church. That's what a synagogue is. It's a Jewish church. 
So Jesus is hanging out in church and Jesus is teaching. Well, everyone keeps looking at him and over at the guy with a shriveled hand. Then back to him and the guy with a shriveled hand. They're waiting for those two worlds to collide because then they can bust him because one of the rules are no healing on the Sabbath. How stupid is that? We'll talk about that in a moment. So they're all looking at shriveled hand guy. Now he's already awkward. He's like, I know I have a shriveled hand. Can you please leave me alone? Why is everybody staring at me? Okay, all my life, everybody's been messing with me. What, now I go to church, I get hassled too. What? Okay, so the whole time they just keep looking back and forth and back and forth. No one's even paying attention to Jesus. So Jesus calls the elephant in the room on the carpet. Here we go. It says this. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with a shriveled hand, get up, stand up in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. In other words, okay, clearly no one's listening. Come here. Let's do this right now. Stand up right here. Okay, everybody happy now? Look, ooh, look, what am I going to do? Okay. We're colliding. So he has him up there, and now it's a showdown because everybody's waiting. He's like, what do you want to ask me? Go ahead. Now the shriveled hand guy's right here. What are we doing? So they asked him a question. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now the tradition says it's not. So they're like, what are you going to do? Are you going to go up head to head with the tradition of the Jews? What are you going to say? So he goes, I'll answer your question, but first let me ask you a question. Jesus did that a lot. He said to them, if any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Now, literally, in some rabbinic writings, here was the rule. You can't pick the animal out of the hole, but you can throw stuff into the hole that it can climb on and get out. Okay, literally, this is how far it goes. Do you understand what I'm saying? I mean, this is ridiculous. They had so many ways around things. He just hit it straight to the heart and he goes, really? So you now have a piece of your property, one of your sheep falls down a hole, right? You're going to go pick it up and you're going to pull it out, right? That's what we do. In other words, you take care of your property. Who do you think my people are? This is my family and I'm not going to respond. I'm just going to sit here and look at this guy with a shriveled hand, not do anything. Of course, I'm going to do something. Then he said this. Uh. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, that's really what they had backwards. They kept talking about what you can't do. He flipped it to the positive. He said, no, you can always do good on the Sabbath. That's kind of the point. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. Then Mark says, this is one of my favorite lines here. He looked around at them all in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Okay, now everything just shifted from this battle for just one moment to this guy. Okay, how awkward is that? Your hand has been pulled in your whole life. Everyone has always said, dude, can you reach it? Can you reach it? Can you reach it? Nope, didn't think so. Okay, your whole life you've been hassled. Now, in front of everybody, this guy says, do you believe me? Stretch out. He didn't heal at first. You understand that? The hand still shriveled. This was an act of faith. Reach out your hand like all the times that you've tried before. Boom, stretches out. Look at this next line. This is incredible. Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored just as sound as the other right in front of everybody miraculously. Everybody knew this guy. He goes to synagogue right in front of them. His body morphs into health. I mean, it's incredible. 
And look at their reaction. According to Luke, but they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Then the Pharisees went out and Mark says, began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. That was their response. What did you just see? Doesn't matter. I don't see anything. I see my doctrine. I see my issue. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care how miraculous he is. I don't care how much he loves on people. I don't care if you just did the most supernatural thing in the world. You are violating what I believe. Whoa, are there really people like that? Yeah, sure are. We got a whole bunch of them right here. What's going on? I mean, do you understand that most of us would go, oh my gosh, he just did something freaky. I don't know who he is, but I'm certainly not going to kill him. Right? I mean, that's kind of an odd response to kill somebody that just did something super. In other words, they know something is occurring, but they refuse to believe it's God. All right. Pick it up in verse 15. Aware of this, the plot to kill him, Jesus withdrew from that place. Many followed him and he healed what? All their sick. How long does that take? Long time. Warning them not to tell who he was because he's doing it in order. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Now he's going to quote Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. It's the longest Old Testament quote in Matthew. It's very important. Matthew quotes the Old Testament all the time because he's talking with Jews, but this is the biggest chunk. And the reason why it's so important is it's the first of what is called a servant song. Isaiah wrote a number of songs talking about what the Messiah was going to be like. So this is a quote from the first one saying, anyway, what's the Messiah like? But it's going to talk about him in a very specific context. What will the Messiah do? In the midst of opposition and battle. Okay, so what's our context here? That's why Matthew included it. Jesus is in confrontation, right? Well, how will the Messiah handle confrontation? And does it look like Jesus? All right, that's the whole point of this quote. Here we go, verse 18. Here is my my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. Pause, where have you heard that before? Jesus' baptism. Jesus comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and what? The heavens break open, and a voice comes down from the Father and says what? This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. It's the same quote. So in other words, God the Father was attesting back to Isaiah as well, and saying, there's the Messiah, people. He he said, I will put my spirit on him, and he he will proclaim justice to the what? Nation, singular or plural? Plural. How many nations are in Israel? It's just one nation. So that's also a talk to who? The Gentiles. This is a Gentile promise. That's kind of important because it's not just Israel. It's plural. There's more than one nation involved in blessing. That's why we're here, by the way. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. What does that mean? It means he's not here to stir up and be a street preacher screaming and yelling and he's causing all kinds of fights and revolution and brawls. That will not be the Messiah. He's going to come in smoothly, quietly, and get his job done. So pay attention. Then how else is he? What else is it going to be like? Verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Till he leads justice to victory. Those two things are normally discarded. They're thrown away. Because, well, the the reed's already bruised. There's no point in bothering with it. The point is the Messiah, when he arrives, 
will take the outcasts of society and make them into something useful. The idea is that he will not reject you just because you're broken. As a matter of fact, those are the people he works with the best. The Messiah will make sure and not leave any waste. He will gather in all that he can. Right? And then he finishes with this. In his name, the nations will put their hope. Okay, so Matthew quotes all of this because he's writing to Jews to say, look how much Jesus is a Messiah. Do you see it? Now, this next story, I'm going to once again combine the accounts uh, for one purpose. I think we need to understand the context really good. This is a story of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Okay, you guys are all familiar with this. A lot of people have heard that phrase. Everyone freaks out about it. You don't even have to go to church and you've heard this, right? What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It's the only thing in the Bible that says it's an unforgivable sin. Okay, well, in order to understand it, let's take a look at the context. Here we go. We're in verse 22. Then they brought him, meaning they brought Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Stop. Why did they bring this guy to Jesus? Because Jesus is a world-renowned exorcist. Do you guys get that? You don't think of Jesus that way, do you? But every time he's mentioned by Matthew as being the Messiah, casting out demons is one of his major labels. So he was known as an exorcist. He would go around, everyone would bring their demon-possessed people to him, and he would cast the demons out. Why is that significant? Because it signals that there's a battle in play. The Messiah was here, and it was a lot about the kingdom of God, but the kingdom was advancing against another kingdom, right? So it was important that he consistently demonstrated battles with the enemy and show himself victorious. So everywhere he went, he was casting out demons. So sure enough, everyone would grab one. Now, this was a special case, like I shared with you before. This is unusual that he was blind and mute because of what the demonic presence had done to him. Do demons have the ability to alter the physical? You better believe they do. Okay, so we're going to learn a little bit more about that in a second. He bring him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. Jesus healed him so he could both talk and see. And that's all they talk about the miracle. That's it. It was almost like, eh, he healed another demon guy. Okay, nobody cares about the miracle anymore. He's already done this a lot. But it's what happens after that's important. All the people were astonished. And Luke says the crowd was amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Okay, in other words, because of that powerful miracle, the whole crowd went, I think he's a messiah. And words began to light all over the crowd. And everyone goes, he's it. Oh, my gosh. Did you see that? Well, now everybody's getting amped to accept him as the Messiah. Well, guess who else is there? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Do they like this? No. They need to shut it down as fast as possible because they do not want anyone misled by this heretic. So they're going to say something that they're going to get in big trouble for. You ready? But when the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who had come down from Jerusalem heard this, they said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. Okay, Beelzebub is a name for Satan, and it's taken from a Philistine god, meaning Lord of the Flies. Somehow that got attached to Satan. Nobody really knows why. It comes from Beelzebul, which means Lord of the House. Remember that in the next phrase. It is only by Beelzebub, they said, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Okay, they just called Jesus Satan-possessed, all right? Bad call. 
Not a good move. Jesus knew their thoughts, so Jesus called them and said to them in parables, and now he's going to give them arguments. His first argument is called the common sense argument. Okay, here we go. Jesus knew their thoughts. He said, how can Satan drive out Satan? Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or household divided against itself will not stand but will fall, Luke says. If Satan drives out Satan, he opposes himself and is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Surely, Mark said, his end will come. In other words, don't be stupid. How in the world am I Satan casting out Satan? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Don't you understand? See, they didn't realize what was going on in the casting out. Do you understand that in casting out a demon, it's something the demon doesn't like? Are we all familiar with that? All right, so there's a war being waged. It's kind of like, I don't want to go. Why are you casting me out? It's a forcing out. So Jesus is going, wait a second, really? This is your logic? I'm Satan, so I'm forcing out my own people. That's stupid. No, of course I'm not doing that. Now look at his next argument. I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebub. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people, your followers, drive them out? In other words, you guys do exorcisms. You doing the same thing? You all Satan too? Kind of like, oh, it's okay for you to do it. It's not okay for me to do it. When you do it, oh, it's godly. When I do it, suddenly it's Satan. This is the most absurd logic I've ever heard. No, that's ridiculous. So then, your own people will be your judges, meaning their actions prove that you're wrong. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, Luke says, Matthew says, the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you and is upon you. In other words, we got only one other option. I'm God, that means you're in trouble. Okay? Because I just showed up. You got a million excuses for why I'm doing what I'm doing. What if I'm legit? Then God just showed up in your presence. That's a big, big statement. Then he says two analogies that are almost identical. And this is why I told you Beelzebul means what? Lord of the house. Okay? That's important because it's a play on words on the next two analogies. One comes from Luke, one comes from Matthew. Here goes Luke's first. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house... His possessions are safe, but when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and he divides up the spoils. Matthew says it this way. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. What did he just say? Satan used to run this show down here. How did he get it? I let him have it. Yes, he ran the show, but hi, I'm here, and when I came in, I beat him down, I locked him down, and I can do whatever I want, because I'm stronger. That's what he just said. We need to lock in our minds that this is no equal battle. It's never been equal. It's always God who is other and a created angelic being that has turned into a demon. That's a totally different deal. So, he said, I now have tied him down, and I have free reign to do what I want to do. Then it says this, by the way, he said, in terms of speaking on sides, you keep saying I'm on Satan's side. Let me tell you, I'm on God's side. Let me tell you about my side. You ready? He who is not with me is against me. He who doesn't gather with me scatters. In other words, if you're not advancing the kingdom on my team, guess whose team you're on? 
I'll draw a line in the sand right now. You ready to go? I tell you the truth. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven for he is guilty of an eternal sin. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You guys read that part? All right. Here's the problem with this passage. I don't know what it means. I've read a number of commentaries on this and everybody's got a different opinion. Here's your three major opinions. Number one, it's something that could only happen in the first century because it was specific to Jesus at that time revealing himself to be the Messiah and you cannot recreate that so that would never happen. It would only happen in that century. I'm not buying that. Brilliant people believe that. I'm not buying it. Second argument, anytime you ever attribute godly things to demonic you immediately commit blasphemy of the holy spirit now if that's the case most all of us have committed blasphemy of the holy spirit and we're all going to hell okay i don't think that's likely either now the third and most common view is a view of logic unfortunately in my opinion it takes things out of context now they'll argue a way into context but i'm not so sure the third i buy the third way either okay so unfortunately, that leaves us pretty empty. But here's their third version. The only unforgivable sin is not receiving Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior. That's literally the third opinion, which is the only way it's unforgivable is if you reject the person that can forgive that. So it's a logic concept. They go, well, wait a second. That's the only unforgivable sin I can think of. So it must fit this category. Uh, I'm not so sure that's right either. Okay. So what is it? Okay. Well, I can tell you what it's not. Uh, first of all, it cannot be Peter or Paul's testimony. You go, what do you mean? Well, okay, I don't know what you made blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but it cannot be denying Christ because Peter did that. You remember? Peter, what happened when everyone goes, so you're into G- you're Jesus' guy, right? What did he say? No, I'm not. He denied Christ blatantly three times and even called down curses to make sure everyone knew he was serious. Well, what happened to Peter? He was forgiven and he was made the pillar of the church. Okay, what was Paul's testimony? What did Paul do before he became Paul? He killed Christians. Okay, so what was he calling the movement of Christianity? Demonic. You understand what I'm saying? He was clearly assuming it was demonic. He was doing God a favor by running around and killing Christians and throwing them in jail. So whatever you think it is, it can't be just merely calling a Christian thing demonic. That doesn't fit either because we know Paul was forgiven and Paul became a pillar of the church. So it can't be those things. So what is it? I don't know. I do know this, that when I walk through, I'm very humble and very, I don't want to say nervous, but I'm very careful of slandering things. When I move through and I see something going on that I don't understand, that it's a movement of God, I walk in very cautiously. I do not automatically go, whatever, that's totally Satan. I'm just careful. Now, does that, is that what this means? Uh, probably not. Does it have to do with a fact that they were denying the Messiah? Yeah, it does. And I'm not doing that. But here's one thing that all commentators agree on. And I agree as well. If you're worried that you committed it, it proves that you haven't. 
Because part of the element of committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is there's no, you don't see anything good in it. You don't see anything good in that. You never even recognize it. You just go on in a hard heart and go on about your life. So if you're freaked out, that's automatic evidence that you didn't do it. So don't worry about it. If you're totally nervous, it didn't happen. Okay. I wouldn't panic about it. But there is one thing I need to comment on before we move on. And that is, why is it a bigger deal to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit than Jesus? Doesn't that seem odd to you when you read that? He's like, well, if you do it to me, no, it's, it's cool. If you do the Holy Spirit, I'm going to have to throw you in hell. You're like, what? Whoa, what do you mean? I thought you guys were all equal. What happened? Okay, why is that? Well, the best guess that I have found is that at that time, Jesus was revealing who he was. Remember, he has never come out flat out. He said all these indicators, but he still had not announced himself publicly as the Messiah. He was still covert. So at that time, he was going, listen, I know you're messing with me. You don't understand me yet. I get that. I haven't fully revealed myself. But you know darn well what God does through the power of his Holy Spirit. Don't mess with that. You understand what I'm saying? In other words, don't violate what you know for sure. Right now, you're still sorting me out. All right, we move on. Okay, we pick it up. Verse 33. Uh, He goes on in a very ticked off mood and starts commenting on the Pharisees. And he says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good, nor make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers. Now, in other words, that means you pit of snakes. How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings up good things out of the good stored up in him. The evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men who will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken, for by your words you will be acquitted, by your words you will be condemned. What does that mean? Our words important. Yes, they are. Why? Because they're indicators of the heart. In other words, over time, you can know what is in a person's heart by what they confess and say through their face, because we only talk out of what we believe. So therefore, words are an indicator. Now, are you truly acquitted by your words? Well, really, it's a heart issue. Jesus has already revealed that to us. You can say all the right things, but if your heart is not connected, it doesn't matter. But what he's trying to tell you is he's saying you need to pay attention to what you're saying because it's a huge indicator of what you really believe. That is why there's an unusual passage in scripture that says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. Do you remember that passage? What's the confession thing about? The confession thing about is you will now publicly say what you believe in your heart And when you say it, it's evidence that you truly believe it. Confession is important. Why do we confess our sins when you already know them and think them in your mind? Because confession is key. It makes something more real when you say it. Have you ever said something and you realize that you are a monster? Whereas if you think it, you can kind of justify it. But when you say it, you go, oh my gosh, who am I? There's something about the words that you use. And Jesus said, you guys are throwing your words all over the place. You keep calling me Satan. You're shouting to people to stay away from me. You're saying all these hateful and horrible things. Be careful what you say because it's coming out of a bad heart. And that's an indicator that you're heading straight to hell. Wow. Verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. 
Okay. It's kind of like, I'm already irritated. Did you really just say that? It's just, these guys are relentless. What they're trying to do is embarrass him in front of people. If you are who you say you are, do something flashy. Show us. Well, what has Jesus been doing all this time in his ministry? But showing evidence. But it's never enough. Do another one. Jump through another hoop for me. Do it for me. No, do another one. No, do another one. No, do another one. The idea is they're trying to be the boss. You are not the boss of God. So he said, no. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. What do we know about Jonah? Big fish, right? Okay. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's his clearest indication so far that he will die and be in a tomb. Okay? They're all getting these little hints as we go along. The men of Nineveh will stand up at judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and one greater than Jonah is here. Why is that an embarrassing analogy or explanation? Because are Ninevites Jews or Gentiles? Gentiles. See, the Jews were cool with this whole idea about, and if I would have preached there, they would have been there to this day. As long as he talked about how Gentiles didn't cut it, the Jews were fine. But now he used a positive analogy. Oh, and those really wicked Ninevites that you guys are disgusted with and want nothing to do with it? Right. Those guys repented, and you're not. He's embarrassing them with the Gentiles. Then he does it again. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and one greater than Solomon is here. You guys remember the story when Solomon is spouting all this wisdom? Queen Sheba? comes from basically the other side of the known world at that time, spends all her money, brings gifts to go try to hear the truth about the world. He said, a Gentile went and spent everything she had to come over and listen to my truth. I'm showing up and nobody's listening to me. Now, this story next is unusual. Please do not get sidetracked too much. I'm telling myself. Do not get sidetracked too much because there's a point to him telling the story. You ready? It's all about demon possession and casting out. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied. That's an under. You got to underline that one if you underline in your Bible. Swept clean and put in order. And then it goes and takes with it seven other demons more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. Okay, now you can either get bogged down and sidetracked on the weirdness of that story. Okay, why do demons have to hang out in people? And why are there seven more? And why is one more wicked than another? And there's a million questions we can argue with. But what's his whole point? It's the next line. That's how it's going to be with this wicked generation. In context... He goes, whatever that means, it gets worse. This generation, when they kick me out, it leaves a void. You're unoccupied. You think it's just going to remain that way? I don't think so. Something will always fill the void. And if it ain't me, guess what it's going to be? It's going to be Satan. And your condition will be worse than we started with. That was his whole point. And this is a lesson to be learned for all of us. There is no such thing as an autonomous human being. There's no such thing as an independent human being. I know you like to pretend that. It's not real. You are always a puppet. 
you're always being moved. You're being moved by advertising. You're being moved by peer pressure. You're always being moved. You are not your own person. Well, I'm just my own person. I don't make my own decisions. No, you're not. Someone's moving it. Either it's the Holy Spirit or it's Satan. Figure it out. Because you're not all by yourself. There's no such thing as open land anymore. Everybody's got something a tent peg stuck in. Somebody dwells there. Somebody's moving stuff. And if you don't have your life full of the Holy Spirit, I question if you're all right. It's kind of the point. We finished this last story with one last great point to lock down. Verse 46, I will combine Mark and Luke so just you can listen to me. Now, Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. And while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers arrived and stood outside wanting to speak with him. But they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. So they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and your brothers are looking for you. And they're standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to him, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? In other words, I don't know these people. What are you talking about? And you go, wow, Jesus, that was totally rude. (laughs) Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, pointing to his disciples, this is not just the 12, this is his whole crew of learners. It's a big group. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. My mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. For whoever does God's will, the will of my father in heaven is my mother or is my brother and my sister and my mother. Okay. Out of those last three words, how many are male? One. The other two are female. This is one. This is the first of the clearest passages in Scripture that tell you that there were female disciples of Christ. You need to understand that. Later on, when we study towards the end, it will reflect backwards in retrospect and explain to you that it was a female disciples of Christ that funded the whole operation. Ladies, you are every bit as welcome and needed in the kingdom of God as men are. You need to understand that he is advancing the kingdom through you. You are not second class citizens. You are not less than in any way. You have been called by Jesus and you have jobs to do. This is not a man's world alone. This is a people thing. And you have been asked by Jesus to walk in his footsteps and to change the world alongside him. Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning of opening our eyes to perhaps maybe some dogma that we've locked into or some philosophy that we hold on too strongly or some viewpoints or doctrines that are beginning to skew how we view the world and how we view people. Would you cleanse us, all of us, together that we may be drawn towards you and be pleasing in your sight. Help us to learn anew what it means to rest. Let us learn anew what it means to love. And Father, that we wouldn't waste your time or harm your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.